We all know people who've come from broken families, from families that lack love and stability and consistency. Maybe you come from a family like that. And you see the void. You see the voids in your own life or in the lives of others. You see just this need to be wanted, this need to be accepted. Sometimes that plays itself out and just telling tall tales, just wanting to get some attention. There's a need to be needed, to want to be involved and included. And so you volunteer for anything. There's a need to kind of make up for whatever deficiencies you have. So if you mess up, you're always quick with excuses and quick to be defensive. Yeah, we see the voids that's left when you don't have a family that's marked by love and stability and consistency. And so you look and you just wonder, how would things have been different in that person's life? How would things have been different in my life if I just had parents who, who loved well, who provided that stability and consistency? How would have it have affected the choices that I made? Because if you don't have that, oftentimes that legacy that's been left to you, if the cycle's not broken, you can then leave to someone else. And as we go through our series, Better Together, this week we're looking at the family and how God has designed a family to be the primary instrument of, of discipleship. I want you to see it this morning. He designed it that way all the way back in the beginning. We're jumping in to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It's a set of verses commonly known as the Shema. So let's check out how families can be better together, especially especially when it comes to making disciples. Deuteronomy, it reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. All these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as the frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now we read those words and we immediately kind of want to jump to verses 7 through 9 because we see that as, okay, here's the power. This is where it's really important. This is what we have to focus on. But before you get to those verses, you got to start all the way back at the beginning in verse 4 because if verse 4 does not capture you and cause you to surrender your entire life to God, well, then you won't do verses 5 and 6, which talks about loving God and how you really love him. And if you're not really loving him, then you won't have that impetus. You won't have that drive to really pass that on to your kids to make verses 7 through 9 a reality. So this entire passage, it hinges on verse 4. That's the foundation. But understand, is not, not only does parenting hinge on verse 4, our entire life hinges on verse 4. Now, the Jews realized just how crucial this passage of Scripture was. It was very important to them. And so uh, they think of these verses as so important, as so critical, that observant Jews, they would quote these verses twice a day, every day. And their hope was that when they died, that these verses would be on their lips, would be the last thing they ever said before they met God. And so this section, it's commonly called the Shema. Shema means to hear, to listen. And not only is this section important for our Jewish friends that they listen, that they hear, 
but it's also important to us as well. Let me give you a little bit of the context. The book of Deuteronomy, it's all about the Israelites preparing to enter the promised land. You remember they were enslaved for generations in Egypt before God miraculously freed them under the leadership of Moses. And then after he frees them, the Israelites, they've been wandering around the desert for about 40 years before they're able to enter the land that God had promised to them. And so the entire book of Deuteronomy is God telling the Israelites, hey, this is how life is going to be like in the promised land. This is what I want you to do. This is what I want you not to do. Here's how I want you to live. How, here's how things are going to be best for you and go well for you. So he's giving them the law. Here's how I want you to spend your time. Here's how I don't want you to spend your time. And it's this law, but it's not a law of just like do's and don'ts. It's a law that's born out of this covenant relationship that God has with his people because he wants to see them thrive. He wants to see them flourish. He wants to see them reach all this vast potential that he has built into them. And so he's saying, out of my love for you, here's how you prioritize life. Here's how you live. And he goes down in the details of it all. And it's this beautiful section. You go through Deuteronomy and you just read this because you'll see that it's very important to God that his people, People are blessed. And at the same time, it's very important to God that his people are a blessing. And to be a blessing, well, that implies that you're in relationship. You can't bless someone if you're not in relationship with them, at least in some capacity. And so God is talking about making a people for himself, a family, and a family that's better together, that's blessing others in how they live. And now to get there, well, you need guidelines, you need these rules, you need these laws, you need, you need this structure, this stability, this consistency. We all need that. Verse 4, it provides that. That's where the stability and the consistency comes from. God says, okay, listen up everybody, hear me, obey me. That word hear, listen, it implies obedience. Okay, I mean, and you know this as parents, right? You tell your children to do something, they may hear you, but you don't know if they're really listening until they obey you. Obedience demonstrates that they're actually listening, that they really hear. That's how it works itself out. And so God says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, why is that so important? Why is this such this bedrock foundational statement that everything, off, everything else hinges off of this? Because this was unique to the Israelites, the oneness of God. All the other religions, all the other people there in and around Asia Minor, they're all polytheistic. They all have numerous gods, and so they go to all these various gods for various things. And God is reminding his people, hey, recognize that I am one. That you don't have to go to all these other gods. There is one true God. See, the Israelites, they dealt with this constant insecurity. And it's why they so often drifted into polytheism. Because they're looking around and they're sacrificing and they're doing these things to this one God. And they're trying to obey him and live for him. But at the same time, they're seeing all their counterparts and all, all these other people. And they're going to all these different gods for all these different things. And so in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well... If my life isn't blessed, if I don't feel protected, if I don't feel provided for, if there's something missing, or if I'm looking over there and it looks better over there, maybe there's some other God who could provide for me, who could do for me what my God's not. 
And so is it really good that we put all of our chips in on this one God, that we hedge our bets all in this way? And so there's this constant kind of tug. Well, maybe if we just kind of spread it around a little bit. And, you know, we value this God too, give a little bit over here, a little bit over there, a little bit over there. Maybe that would be better. And so you, you follow the history of the Israelites and you see that that's oftentimes what they do. They so often drift towards polytheism, making golden calves and doing all kinds of other things, allowing their sons and daughters not to follow the commands that God has, has given, but just sacrificing a little by little by little until you get to a point where, hey, everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes. So God is saying, hey, Israel, listen up. I am one. I am consistent. I am benevolent. I am powerful. I have plans for you. I'm making known my plans for you. More than that, I'm telling you how you're going to accomplish these plans that I have for you. And even more than that, I'm going to give you the strength to do it. And so he, he's saying, hey, I'm, 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 I'm everything for you. I am one. You don't have to go. You don't have to hedge your bed. You don't have to put a little over here, a little over here. It's, it's me. It's just me. Now today, as the people of God, we don't just have like an addition to that, but we have even a more firm foundation added on to it. It's the purpose of Jesus Christ. And why do we listen to Jesus' commands? The same way the Israelites listen to God's commands. Because Jesus is good. Jesus is consistent. He provides stability. He's benevolent. He's powerful. He has plans. He tells us what to do. He equips us. He, he empowers us through his Holy Spirit. All these things. So the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What, Jesus, what um, Moses said in Deuteronomy, Jesus then confirms in the New Testament. See, when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? That's what he goes to. He goes right here. He says, this is important for us today. So how do we recognize God as God in our lives? That becomes the question. And the answer is, God doesn't just become the number one priority of our lives. He becomes the priority of our lives. See, this is what God is trying to impress upon the Israelites, that their insecurity was telling them, hey, God should just be predominant. We, you know, he'll be our most special God, but, you know, we'll also sacrifice to these gods a little we'll flex over here. We'll ju just in case one of them can, like, look after us a little better. Let's go ahead and just, we don't want to make any of them mad. And so God is seen as predominant, but God's saying, I have no desire to be predominant. I want to be preeminent. You understand the difference between pre predominance and preeminence? Predominance is one among many. Hey, you're the best among a lot, right? Of all, of all these different things I hear, you're the best. Preeminence is, oh, you're the best and there's not even a rival. I mean, to even speak of anything else in such a way, to honor anything else in such a way is just laughable. It's kind of like, you know, with my wife, Steph, I were to say, hey, Steph, you know, uh, out of all the ladies out there, you know, I got an eye for all of them. I love a lot of them, but I love you the most. You know, that's not going to go over very well. Why? Because she has no desire to be predominant in my life. Um, among all the women, she wants to be preeminent. There's no one else. I don't share this type of love with anyone else. She's preeminent. And see, this is what God is saying I want. I have no desire to be predominant. I have no desire to be the best among many. No, I want to be the one and only. I am the one true God. You love me and me alone. This is what he's asking. This is what he's wanting for the Israelites. 
And see, understand that we must make God preeminent in our families. Make God preeminent in your family. And you do that by talking about the responsibilities that you have and how God is central to all of it. So you, you just go through and you talk about it with your kids. Hey, whatever, whatever it is that you live, work, study, and play, how does God feed into that? How is he a part of that? Because once you're in a relationship with him, he defines everything. He defines the work we do. He defines how we study. He defines how we eat. He defines how we play. He defines it all. He, he, he is the one that we, uh, is the lens that we see our entire life through. It's not the other way around. And so that, that, so we bring that out in our families so that he is preeminent and he affects every detail of every moment of life. And so you ask questions. How can we honor God in this scenario? Uh, you know, we're unable to worship with the church this Sunday, so how are we going to worship where we are? Uh, you ask these questions. God being preeminent gets grounded and expressed through love. See, that's verses 5 and 6. Now, this is not merely a just a sentimental act or an emotion. I'm going to do, I'm going to do some loving things here. I'm going to feel loving towards God. No, the Shema spells it out. And he says, in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, and then in the way that you obey his commands, this is emotion and intellect. We're told to love him with our soul. This is our will. We're determined to love him. We're focused on our love towards him. We love him with, 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 in the obedience of his commands. This is our strength. This is with all of our strength. This is everything we do, all of our physical activities. They all become an act of love towards God. And understand, God is demanding nothing less than total and complete allegiance and obedience. He says, that's how you express love to me. It's with your emotion. It's with your mind and how you think. It's with your determination. It's, it's with your physical activities. And so you can begin to see these practical implications for parenting. Do you understand the best thing that you can give your kids is not salvation? That's not really yours to give anyway. You can't give that to them. The most important thing that you can give them is not information. As important as knowledge is, that's not it. The best thing you can give your kids is the example of God being preeminent in your life and how you love. Where it just comes out in the way you think, in what you do, in, in your emotion, and how you're not just emotionally swayed by the circumstances, but there's this stability and consistency there. There's this faith, this trust, this joy, this optimism. It just comes out. And they see this passionate example of this love relationship that you have with God. When kids see you embrace the great commandment to love and how that gets expressed, well, that's like the single most important thing that you can give them. Fuller Institute, they did a study where they looked over 300 families and they were to try, trying to determine, okay, what's the most important determination or factor in establishing families that, are, that ha, are, have this warmth and togetherness about them? That's what they wanted. Okay, how do we, how do we develop families that have warmth and togetherness? <laughs> they were surprised to find out that the number one factor was faith. Faith. Faith in God. Parents who loved God with the way they think, with how they act, with what they do, with their emotions, with all of it and their determination, that when that is present and when they're able to see that and pass that along to the kids, 
then you'll have a family that's united, that's together, the way God intended families to be. God, in verse 6, he gives us a little more insight as to what that looks like. He says that his commands get internalized on our hearts. That when we love God, we actually do what he says. In other words, the great commandment to love God and to love others, that actually fuels the great commission. That when you really love God and you really love others, what happens? Well, then you're going to do what he says. And if he says to make disciples, well, then you make disciples. The great commandment fuels the great commission. It's not the other way around. And so as you see that, I mean, so much of religion is just about external appearances. I mean, you look at the religions of the world, it's, it's all about external appearances. Well, let me just do this, and I have to do that, and I have to do that. Let me check these boxes. Okay, I look good. God, from the very beginning, was not about that. He says, no, I want this to be impressed on your hearts. I want it to be this internal thing that just comes out of you. And when it's internal, when it's a relationship that's internal, it just comes out. I mean, that's true of any relationship, isn't it? It's true of your relationship with your spouse, with your relationship with your kids, with your parents, with your friends, with your grandparents, with your coworkers, whoever it is. When you're in a relationship with that person, well, you're just going to talk about them from time to time. It's going to come out. And God's saying, I am the preeminent relationship in your life, so it's going to come out all the time. It's going to come out with your emotions. It's going to come out with what you do. It's going to come out with what you say. It's going to come out with how you think. I'm going to come out all the time. It's from the overflow of what I'm doing in your life. It's constantly coming out. Who I am constantly comes out of you. And this is what God wants for us to be in that type of relationship with him so that he just comes out. And you see how that overflow then feeds Verses 7 through 9. So you don't get to verses 7 through 9 unless you recognize God as preeminent and then you love him in such a way that he comes out in every aspect of life. And then you get to verses 7 through 9 because it comes out in how we raise and how we disciple our kids. God says, teach them diligently. Impress it on them Often, This is like a sculptor who is like chiseling something into stone or a craftsman who's carving something into wood. It's, it's, you are permanently imprinting this upon them. There's this idea of repetition that it happens over and over and over again. There's this consistency to it all. There's a weight to it. Yes, enjoy your kids, absolutely. But the greatest joy is seeing God work through you to disciple your kids. To do things through the way that you love and lead them that you wouldn't even imagine that, hey, I can mold and shape this little boy, this little girl to love God and love others. See, God wants to join you on that. He wants you to do this together. Let me ask you this. What are your dreams for your kids? Do you dream that they will be, grow up and be successful and Maybe get married and have a successful job and make a good amount of money, be set for retirement? Are your dreams that they would be saved and like go to church and that kind of thing? Or is, is your dream that they would be just happy and satisfied? You know, those are all fine things. They're all good things to want for your kids, absolutely. But you understand that God has bigger dreams for them than all that. His dream for your kid is not just that they would be saved. It's not just that they would go to church. God's dream for your child is that they would be the church. 
that they would exist in this loving relationship with God, that they would love him and love others in such a way that they are making disciples who make disciples. You understand, God wants to use your kids in a mighty way to do incredible things, things that you wouldn't even believe they could. You need to embrace God's dreams for your kids. You need to ask God, okay, what do you want for my child? Because I want to parent them and mold them in such a way that your dreams for them can become a reality, not in spite of me, but because I intentionally am joining you with this. See, God, God wants this to be a partnership thing. He's telling you what to do. He's telling you what he wants. He's telling you how to do it. And he's empowering you to do it through the power of his Holy Spirit. And yeah, they're big dreams. They're huge dreams. And so oftentimes it's easy. We think we dream big dreams for our kids. So oftentimes it's easy to dream smaller ones because God has these huge, gigantic dreams for your kids. And he wants to use you to help make those dreams a reality. Now the Israelites, they're, they're seeing this and they're reading this and they're saying, okay, this is what we've got to do. And they take these words very literally. I mean, you go and you, even today, and you see faithful, obedient Israelites. And when God says, hey, I want these on your hands, well, they put them on little things on their hands and I want them between your eyes. Okay, we'll, we'll tie a band. We'll, we'll put them in a little box between, between our eyes and on the doorpost. Yeah, we'll do that. And so they take these very, very literally. But what the heart of God is saying here is, I just want this to be a natural part of life. That you, we want to take the scheduled elements of life, and they're all important. You know, maybe you set aside some time for family devotion. That's great. It's important. Maybe you take some time and you pray before meals. That's important. And you come to church regularly and worship with the church family. That's important. It, it, all these are critical. But God is saying, hey, I want you to love me in such a way that as you're training and you're impressing this upon your kids, that it's coming out in every moment of life. And oftentimes those unscripted moments can be the most important. So make the most of the unscripted moments of life. When you're just driving in the car and you're just shooting the breeze, you're, you're, you're bringing into the conversation what God is teaching you through the scriptures. As you're working in the kitchen and you're doing this, you're, you're reminded of maybe the story of Mary and Martha and how Martha's working hard, but Mary's looking for what's best. Maybe as you're dealing with some scenario, something, you just take a moment and you say, hey, we need to just pray about this. But it's these unscripted moments of life when the kids just kind of walk into your room and they stumble upon you praying or they see you reading the Bible. and they, It's those moments that are almost going to make more of an impact on them. You say, oh man, that's what my mom does. That's what my dad does. That's the kind of person I want to be. Maybe you're hearing all this. You're thinking, you know, that kind of family sounds great. I'd love to have a family that just, you know, in the unscripted moments of life, we're, we're talking about these things. I'd love to have a family that loves God in such a way that what we do and how we think and our emotions are all aligned with what God would want it to be. But I just don't feel like that. Or, or maybe you look and you say, I, I, you know, this is great. I'm so glad families can hear this. But, you know, I don't, I don't have any kids that I'm raising. There's no kids in my home. I don't know how I apply all this. With either one of those scenarios, I, I want you to think for a moment about who wrote these words in Deuteronomy. It was Moses. 
Moses, he would never be the one to enter the promised land. He's preparing the people for, hey, this is what life is going to be like in the promised land. God wants to bless you, and he wants you to be a blessing. So let's get you prepared to make that a reality. But he wasn't going to enter the promised land. He even told the people by this time that I'm not going to be the one to take you in. See, oftentimes, even if you don't have it all together and it's not all perfect and you don't have this mighty faith, the faith you wish you had, the relationship you wished you had, understand what parents do in moderation, children often do in excess. And so, no, Moses wouldn't lead the Israelites into the promised land, but Joshua would. Joshua was Moses' son his son in the faith. It wasn't his biological son. Maybe you don't have a biological children in the home who you're shaping and you're molding. But like Moses, you've, you've, got, a, you've got a spiritual child. <laughs> Moses had Joshua. And Joshua would be the one to enter in to the promised land and lead these people. And he'd hear God and he'd be reminded himself, be strong and courageous. And this was Joshua leading with this strength and courage. <laughs> See, Moses, as great of a leader as he was in many respects, he developed an even greater leader in Joshua. As a parent, whether a biological parent or a spiritual parent, you have the opportunity to leave a legacy better than what you received. And that's really what the community of faith does is we ought to be getting a little stronger and a little stronger as we impress more and more so that we look back and we can say, hey, we've come together as a family and there's this rich legacy of faith of people who love God and love others. And that's been demonstrated in the way that they've been obedient to God's commands. They've made disciples who made disciples. It's what happens when we come together as a family the way God intends. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have designed family to really illustrate what you are doing with all of us, bringing people into your family, an ever-expanding family. God, may we as spiritual parents and biological parents disciple the children you give us in such a way that they would love you and love others well. Because we've modeled it, we've shown it, it's just come up in the overflow of who we are. God, we need your help to do this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.